0: Say that last sentence against their hand, again. You go handsome. to
1: work for capital so that your capital can eventually go to work for you if you uh-huh. live below your means. so you that, that,
0: just, you. that's just, that, that one makes me happy when you say that one.
1: So your capital can go work for you. Yeah. And all these young kids today that love socialism and hate capitalism, I mean, I hope they don't have to go through the pain of most socialistic societies, but... Yeah, you go to work for capital, you save capital, so your capital go for work. Capitalism is like almost a bad name right now, but actually capitalism has brought almost all major financial transformations in the world from, you know, hospitals, dams, all of that comes from capital, which is capital money that can be invested, jobs, you know, Teslas, your iPhone, everything you like comes from capitalism.
0: Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. And we've been called the biggest box full of chocolates on the internet because every episode is pretty different. <laughs> and uh, if you are a longtime listener from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. And if you're brand new, thanks for checking us out. We're sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com different. And while you're there, you'll be able to set up a free one hour growth review with an expert in your industry. NetSuite.com slash different. On this episode, uh, an entrepreneur, a real estate investor, and the best-selling author of Wealth Can't Wait, none other than David Osborne. Uh, David and I have got to know each other over the last handful of years, and this is a guy I respect deeply. He built one of the top real estate brokerages in the world, founding over 50 companies. We have a no-bullshit conversation about Making money, how to educate yourself on building wealth, how you can build capital and put that capital to work for you, and so much more. You'll gain some, uh, a ton of practical insights on this episode that you can put to work in your life immediately. You can also go to Lockhead.com to check out more uh, in the show notes for this episode, get the key takeaways, and learn more about David's incredible background and how to pick up a copy of his book. Now, hey-ho, let's go.
1: I just read Homo Deus. I don't know if you've read that book. It's um, it's all about, and it was interesting. He said, liberal democracy was created around this idea that the individual is sovereign and that the more freedom you can create for an individual, then the better the society. And so that goes to like seatbelt, smoking, alcohol consumption, slurpy consumption, like should you, the more freedom you have, but it also makes man divine. That was why he was saying Homo Deus, like man is a God. He's saying like, if we design the entire society to give you maximum freedom, then you are literally a, a sovereign human being, a divine human being, and, and you build a society that way, and that's what Western societies have done, and it, the reason we kick the Soviets' ass is basically because the more freedom you create for people, the more they innovate and create stuff so it built a better economy, but then an alternative to that is the is the Chinese culture currently, where they're talking about like social rankings, right, and how much you do for society not how much you do for individual freedom and if you have a high social ranking you can get tickets to the game and go sit on the flights and that's like orwellian to us but it is certainly a different way of looking at society and and I, who knows where it's going in the future in his book homo deus he was saying that the that humans are basically just an algorithm that this that choice is actually an illusion free and I'm a massive libertarian. So I want to be clear about that. But it's always interesting to see an alternative perspective and go, is that true that we're not really free at all? We just have a series of algorithms we live by. And that as the algorithm in the sky, the great big computer gets more and more powerful then ultimately maybe there'll be a new religion and it will be more like what's best for society or what's best for, you know, the world as a whole. And that will take away some individual free rights. Now that terrifies me because I'm all about individual free white rights. But when you see the amount of plastic in the oceans that we talked about earlier and people dying of like diabetes at 55 because they're fed badly, you do wonder sometimes, well, free will is great if we truly have free will. But if we don't have free will and people are getting fat and dying earlier than they should, maybe we should outlaw slurpees. And if people are putting plastic in the oceans, maybe we should outlaw all that stuff too. I don't know. It's a complicated conversation. And that's why I prefer just barreling down and making money than having these esoteric thoughts all the time
0: (laughs) well we'll get to making money in a second for sure but you know on this one um sort of the stuff that hurts other people that's very clear that's a no-brainer right that's a no-brainer to me i i i have a line around sort of plastic in the ocean that's different than Smoking or seatbelts or eating poorly or whatever, right? Or drinking too much or whatever it is. So on stuff that we know is bad for other people and bad for the world, I think there should be laws about that. I think if you throw a cigarette, you know, in my world, you throw a cigarette butt on the ground. You lose a finger. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't, I don't, you understand, I don't understand our justice system. You, you know, Singapore, for example, uh, have you been to Singapore? They cane you. Yeah, yeah, I've been to Singapore. They, they cane you for spitting on the sidewalk, Fuck right? yeah, they do. And look, maybe that's a little too far, but like I'm somebody who thinks that if you're driving a Prius slowly in the left-hand lane and there's 10 cars behind you, that you should have a $25,000 fine and six months in jail. That's, but...
1: <laughs> you should lose your license for sure. I agree with that. No, I I, know, I,
0: I, I go further than that. Like, yeah, and... and and you know, I, I, to your point, like if you steal something from a Seven Eleven, yeah, like a little, a little whack with a cane. I mean, I, I, I just think we need some stronger disincentives on certain things.
1: <laughs> you know, this book. You know, I don't know if I was listening to a podcast, but recently I heard that Singapore is the happiest country in the world. So look that up on your computer. I don't know where I heard it. I can't remember if it was in this book or on a podcast you know what, I think it might have been a podcast, but it said that people are actually happier with a greater level of security than they are with a greater level of freedom. And well, what they were saying is, you know, you can walk around in Singapore at night and not worry about getting mugged and attacked. You can walk, you, you know, you don't have to deal with trash everywhere.
0: Um, it, it is amazing, and, actually. Yeah. Um, although, so here, here's the World Happiness Report. Let's
1: yeah, I know. There's probably like five different ones with five different companies. So in other countries. At the
0: top. According to... Uh, let's make sure I'm pulling up the right thing here.
1: You know what it was? It was a blue zones. Um, it was uh, uh, Dan Buettner, I think from the blue zones. So let me,
0: the world happiness report. Okay. Australia's number two. This is according to Forbes.com based right. on a report that is called the gross national happiness. Oh no. He's talking about the Bhutan there. Yeah, which is very cool. We all know about that. There's yeah. But a apparently world according to the one I report. heard
1: Bhutan's actually like 70th. It's like more marketing.
0: So Australia's number 10, according to the world happiness report, Sweden, nine, New Zealand, eight, Canada. How's it going? A eh? number seven, the Netherlands, number six, the Netherlands. I don't understand. Is it Holland? Is it the Netherlands? Are they Danes? Are they, like, they, they seem to have a lot of names. Um,
1: okay. Here's what it says here. It says the UN study said Singapore is the happiest nation in Asia.
0: Ah, okay. 30, in Asia.
1: 30th, happy 30th, happiest in the world.
0: And the winner is According Finland. To, yeah. yeah. So Finland and Norway are one and two and three is Denmark. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I've
1: been to Finland. It's a great country. I love Finland. They're uh, super happy. They've got, you know, very equal society. And they, they said there's something about equality in a society that makes people happy. But it helps when you've got 5 million people all from exactly the same background. And um, they've all got their little flower pots in the windows and stuff like that. So do
0: you think they're a case for, for against diversity? Is that what you're saying here, Dr. I'm not
1: saying necessarily. I just think it's easier. I don't, I think you've got to have integration for sure, but I just think it's way easier to be happy if it's like you and your extended family versus like a bazillion people from a bazillion different countries, America, you know, we never get credit for this, but we're the most integrated country on earth. Well, yeah, I mean, and we hear all the, you know, the racism and the conflict, which I think is valid and is there. But I also think we're the we have the most integrated society of any on Earth. Go to Japan and try to be a foreigner or go to, you know, I think
0: it's still tough in a place like England. You know, in the UK, there's still remnants of that class system that that sits just below the surface. Right. And so who your father was and all that shit. Uh, matters in England in a way that it doesn't matter here in the United States. Yep. Yep. Um, the interesting thing, too, for me about the U.S. is, um, and I know there's some systemic things that are that make it hard, but the reality is um, the American dream is still alive and is still possible. One of the things I've is. loved about living for 22 years now, um, now, I don't live in it anymore, but I live close enough for rock and roll to, to uh, Silicon Valley, is you know, th- this is a place where you can get off the plane with fucking nothing and based on your own hard work and and your merit and ability to produce results, you can actually fucking do something with your life, right? You can do something amazing.
1: Yeah, but there is a couple background pieces to that too, which I didn't get at first. My my oldest daughter's daughter has a master's degree in psychology and, and family counseling and she was on to me about white privilege one time and it kind of irked me at first. It made me really annoyed, but... I sat with it for a few years, and I processed it, and I realized that, yeah, if you get off the plane in uh, Silicon Valley, and you're highly educated, and you understand how to program and stuff like that, you can change the world. If you're born in West Virginia, and it doesn't matter what color you are, it's really socioeconomic, but just, you know, if you're born in West Virginia, and you never went to high school, and you had parents that were selling moonshine out in the woods, and they never sent you to high school, and all of a sudden, you're 22, you can't hardly read and write, you get off a plane in in Silicon Valley, it's probably not going to help you that much. It's not impossible but there's a certain amount of uh, programming that goes into your childhood that either serves you or doesn't serve you. And there's a minimal level. Like if, if, if the minimal level is a college degree, or I, I don't even want to say college degree, cause I think college is overrated, but a certain level of education, if you don't have that at birth or youth, or if you're in foster homes or something goes like that, it's not that easy to make that time up.
0: Yeah, I certainly, and I think uh, your conditioning, uh, as you grow up, it uh, matters a lot. I, I read recently, shit, I can't remember where, about the percent likelihood you're going to play a major league sport if one of your parents played a major league sport. Way higher, right? And it, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, if, you're, if, you're, if your dad's an NBA player, then maybe you are. And if your mom is a, an Olympic sure. skater, then maybe you're going to be like, it just, because you grow no, up same, with it. Same with movie actors, you know, moving into private
1: equity now, I'm like, my dad was a soldier, my mom was a realtor. Now that I understand private equity and the economic opportunities, first off, I understand why all of our smart people go into it. And second off, I'm like, well, why couldn't my mom or dad have been a private equity person? then at age 25, I'd have had this knowledge instead of having to kind of claw and scratch my way there, you know,
0: at 50. So tell me about this. I mean, you've gone from being a uh, you started as a realtor, did you not?
1: I started as a realtor. Um, my, my dad was, you know, Gulf War One was on. My dad's like, son, you ought to sign up. There's nothing like being on the battlefield. So I immediately called my mom and said, hey, mom, dad's trying to get me killed and get me a job. So she was a realtor. She hired me and, and I came on her team um, and sold real estate for three years. I was lucky enough to be at Keller Williams, which at that time had like eight or 900 people. Today, we got 180,000. And so when I said after selling real estate for three years, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to sell real estate anymore. What else could I do? Um, they wanted to sell franchises. So I just started going up to Dallas and opening franchises. I was 27 years old. I didn't know anything from anything, but, um, you know, I was just lucky enough, right company, right time, right work ethic, right uh, learning-based mindset. Gary Keller was a great teacher. He's a billionaire today, very intense guy, but definitely brings it every day. And I was around that. I was around a lot of successful people. My environment was right. And I just got after it hard and I had enough room to fail because there was, you know, Keller Williams wasn't great like it is today, like it was just beginning. So we were all learning together. So I was able to buy all these franchises. They wouldn't let people do that today because they have tighter systems. It's almost like I got into McDonald's and I got to go buy 15 McDonald's because they were just desperate to get McDonald's out there versus having to be highly talented to get the right to have 15. And then over time, as I applied myself to that with tons of mistakes and failures along the way, I got pretty good at it. Ended up with a partner, Smokey, becoming the number one franchise owner in the country and uh, number, you know, top 10 in the country. We probably sell more than almost everybody. We got, we sold uh, about 11 billion, 10 or 11 billion in real estate last year, uh, 35,000 transactions. In one list, we're a number four company in the U.S. I don't think it's quite right. I think we're probably number seven, but it's close enough.
0: <laughs> seven Four. four. <laughs> so you're in the top 1% of real estate franchise owners in America. Is that probably... Point. So point one percent correct. Yeah. So how many uh, uh, Keller Williams franchises ultimately uh, roll up to uh, to uh, Senator Osborne here?
1: <laughs> so I've got with my partner Smokey, uh and I I want to make sure I give him credit because I forget sometimes and he doesn't like that. There's 15 franchises that we own with about 5,000 agents, and then I also am involved in five master franchises that probably have close to 30,000 agents and probably does about 30 billion in sales. Yeah. It's a, it's a decent and amount. So you, and what's it, funny about it is I was talking to a kid this morning. I'm like, I didn't start out trying to do that. I just started out trying to make the first one survive. Like the first one I opened, I'm like, please don't go bankrupt. You know, we were in there every day trying to build cubicles, put computer systems in place. And we were hoping to make $200,000 worth of profit from that business. I remember that was our goal. Could we please make 200 grand? So, you hey, know,
0: 200 grand's a lot of money.
1: It is a lot of money. It's way better, especially when you're risking 200 to make that 200. It's way better to make 200 on 200 than lose all 200, which happens a lot as well.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And the other, I forget who said this quote, but it's a great one, which is, uh, you know, making the first million is way too hard, so just get focused on the second.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's smart. There is is a
0: bit of an element of that, right? Like it just when you when you're staring at a big ass goal and it the delta between where you are and where you want to be is like it's just so overwhelming it's like ah fuck that goal like just go way ahead of the goal
1: <laughs> i'm a big fan of that i'm a big i think you should aim for the freaking stars and then if you fail you'll maybe hit the moon is the saying but Yeah, I think it's easier to think massively big. I think one thing that drives you forward, but you've got to be not delusional about it. So some people will be like, oh, hey, I'm starting a new company. We're going to be the number one tech company in the world. And then you're like, hey, dude, you're you're delusional. But it's more like, yeah, my goal is to be the number one in my industry. That gives you a giant motivation to move towards while you take care of all the micro little things you got to take care of in order to get there. But it's way, I think, way more inspiring, motivating and sensible to think really, really, really big to begin with. But don't look delusional. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a fine line between saying, "Hey, like, I want my private equity fund to have five billion under management. That's a lot of money. That would be really good. Our short-term goal is one billion. But I'm not trying to beat Blackstone with one trillion under management. If I showed up to you and say, "Hey, yeah, my new mortgage, my new private equity fund is going to have a trillion under management," you'd be like, "Well, what's your background exactly?" I'm like, "Oh, I just started like a year ago yeah. or two years ago." Um, that's stupid. So you got to manage all that. Actually, my external goal that I tell people is one billion. So right now we're at about fifty million. So we're five percent there, right? But Come I told on, you Osborne, because you're my you get on I, with it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I told you because you're my friend that the goal I have behind that and that my staff, that my team know about is we're actually shooting for five billion. But we're going to tell the world one billion because it seems more reasonable.
0: Yeah, I, I I know that thinking for sure. And you know, the other thing I'm curious to get your thoughts on this one is. It takes so much longer and is so much harder than most people A can imagine and B ever really fucking admit.
1: Has that been your experience? Of course, man. And I'll tell you why uh, you have to be an optimist to be an entrepreneur is because of that. (laughs) Like you got to wake up every day and go, Hey, we're right on track. Even though it's been, we thought we'd be here in three years and now we're five years in and we still haven't made a dime. It takes way longer. I mean, you know, my, my real estate success took, probably 10 years uh, to, to, to of working, you know, like everyone does. I As a, it a two years in one. Or
0: 10 years to, to do? No, to get when I opened the franchise. First franchise. So starting in, at- in 1996,
1: I went up to Dallas and opened up the first franchise. And I didn't really feel like I'd arrived until about 2006. So it was literally like 10 years. i was like, holy crap, I'm doing great. I'm making a lot of money. And what happened two years later? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. I got all the way there. I finally felt like I'd arrived. I was, I was earning seven figures all of a sudden after 10 years. And those were a long 10 years, man. I mean, that was working, I call it the 20 years in 10. You got to work you know, 80, 70, 80, 90 hours a week for 10 years, or at least I did. I'm sure there are people smarter that do it better. But, and then, um, and then we got there. And then all of a sudden, two years later, there's this massive, biggest crash in the history of real estate. So yeah, it takes, (laughs) and I got lucky too. Keep in mind, I'm like at a great company that's growing incredibly fast. I have a lot of tailwind. If you're an entrepreneur that, you know, hasn't got all that behind you, it probably takes 20 years. Um, That's why people always, you know, they always look at the credit and the monies that an entrepreneur makes and they way underestimate the amount of risk, the amount of failure, the amount of stuff. So if you're a successful entrepreneur, you're going to look like an idiot for probably 10 years and then suddenly everyone's going to think, oh, you're way too rich. You got too much money because if you keep plugging away and you make it, there's a transition point where you do get stupid rewards and you get rewarded way more than you probably should. But the reason is you spent those 10 years where every day there was a chance you could have nothing the next day.
0: Um, and and that's so the, I got I a question for you about that. It. I mean, I've experienced this in my own life. Um, I experienced it to some degree today. So how do you actually not to some degree? I fucking uh, totally experienced it today uh, in what real estate, by the way. I got a story. What happened? Well, so y- my wife carries a genius, right? Yep. And so we built our house. Yep. Everybody who comes to our house says it's one of the most, you know, it's a, just a beautiful house and it's yep. not like one of these like opulent, place like it's beautiful functional anyway and she's one of these rare people david where half her brain is like insanely creative and half her brain is spreadsheets and timelines and budgets and all that so Mm -hmm. she's sort of uniquely qualified to be uh both a home designer as well as kind of the the mega um project manager she's not a gc but she she she's the she's the conductor of the orchestra. So anyway, we just we just sold uh, our second house that she's built, and we did you know incredibly well. It's the hi- highest uh, revenue per square feet in in the city of Capitola, which is an amazing achievement. But wow. the city of Capitola, at every fucking turn, tried to fuck us over, tried to stop yeah. us, uh, delayed things, cost us our first buyer. Uh, refused yeah. to, you know, give us inspections without tearing, the, you know, giving us finals without tearing this apart and tearing that apart. All none of which made any fucking sense. And like, and that's just one example. And so, what it put in my face, David, is wow. When you really go for true doing something legendary, there is a massive amount of the world that gets angry about that. That that doesn't want you to do legendary, like the amount of barriers in place, the amount of resentment, the amount of uh, glass you have to break, um, whether it's in this case with a city um, or in, in any case, you know, I look at it in the business world. It's the same thing. Like the world is not a request for you to do legendary things. The world is a request for you to shut up and sit down and don't piss people off. And so I guess that leads me to a question, which is, you know, how do you, how do you persevere in the face of 10 years of really trying to make things happen where there's just barrier after barrier and, and reason to give up after reason to give up? And and this here's the one I will always be fascinated with this pursuit of something you think is legendary in the face of very little, if any, support and very little, if any, evidence that it's going to work. <laughs>
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, so first off, you've got to be a little bit crazy to try that, right? So your, your wife's a genius. She's probably a little crazy. Um, you know, some of us just don't fit in a box of working for somebody else. Right. So, um, but there's a story I'll tell you that I've always loved, which is they, they took these monkeys, this is an experiment and they, they put them in a cage and then they put a banana up on a ladder and then uh, every time they tried to go climb the ladder, and get the banana, they would spray all these monkeys with a pressure hose. So they'd all fall down. They couldn't get the ladder. And eventually they quit trying. They just stand there and they look up at the banana. They don't care anymore. And, and th- then they would take a m- new monkey and they would put that monkey into the cage. And as soon as that monkey would start trying to climb up the ladder to get the banana, all the other monkeys would grab that monkey and pull it down. And, you know, the aha I got from that story was because people have been hurt before in failure and mocked and teased, they don't want anyone to go for the ladder. They're just so averse to punishment, pain, psychological difficulty because that's something that's been inbred in them from their childhood which is life really, right? Like even me, I try to be the most encouraging guy to my kids I could possibly could be. And you know what comes out of my life? Stop doing that. Don't do, what the, what the, fuck are you doing over there? Quit making a mess, pick that shit up. Like I'm trying to be positive to my kid. I'm probably one of the most aware people around it that I know, certainly in the top 10%. And I'm still constantly criticizing them, right? So think about that compounding over a lifetime. Don't do this, don't do that. All of a sudden, if you haven't had some crazy force driving you through that, it's hard to be an entrepreneur because, you're like, no, don't do that. That ain't going to work. You're crazy. Don't make a mess. That's risky. Don't do that. You know, you just programmed in that. But think about that. You're, you're a new monkey. You've somehow come through it all. Like I traveled as a military family, so I was never in the same place. I didn't really build up a community around me. Moved probably 15 times by the time I was 17. And then all of a sudden I start having success. I'm not, I didn't have that group pulling me down every time I tried to climb the ladder. I was having to make my own rules. So, I think uh, for an entrepreneur to be successful, you have to be massively resilient. You have to sort of not listen to other people. You have to be somewhat rebellious, which is why so many people dropped. I got thrown out of three high schools. You know, I used to fight, uh, fight uh, verbally fight with everybody. My dad was so strong that I wasn't really afa- afraid of anyone except my father. And um, so that's one piece. Resilience and just, I just needed to go my own way. But and my, then, my
0: big question on, on this one, David, is like, we all have those moments, yeah. Where life has just beaten the snot out of us, whether it's the fucking the assholes at the city of Capitola or, or whatever your version of what that is. Oh, yeah. is Right. Yeah. yeah and yeah, and yeah. you just, you just think, fuck this. Like I'm not doing this anymore. Go fuck yourself. I, you know, I'm going to go home and drink beer and forget about the whole thing. What do you do in those moments?
1: Yeah. So I plug in something inspirational when I was younger. I mean, now it's a program. So now I'm well, pro- I program myself, but I go back to your environment has to support your goals. And the biggest component of environment is who you hang out with. Um, and so by hanging out with entrepreneurs, the reason we created go was to create an environment where people could come together and share their successes and their failures and people would celebrate them and high five them. You didn't have to be embarrassed about your successes or get beat up about your failures because, you've got to be around the right people Jim Rohn was my favorite Jim Rohn living the extraordinary life was a CD that I listened to as a kid like probably a hundred times and I would I listened to it so much I could almost do it word for word you know Jim Rohn would say you can't have four springs you don't get four springs you get a spring then a summer then a fall then a winter and you better damn well hope you planted some seeds in the spring or you're going to go hungry in the winter. The farmer doesn't say, I want four springs. I and mean, I used to like internalize that so much and that I would actually try to teach it almost exactly like Jim Rohn would teach it. Never quite as good, obviously, but uh, you've just got to expose yourself to the level of thinking that will carry you through the downtimes. The right friends, the right coaches, the right mentors, the right peers. And I did that and, and I did it, you know, goofily and faultily and had to go through a lot of false friends, but now I've got a pretty solid group around me and, and Tony Robbins is another good one. Like at the beginning, you need motivation to get through those walls that you have to run through. And then later on, you just need some brains to wrap around that motivation. Otherwise you're just a motivated idiot. So, but it starts with a need for inspiration, right?
0: <laughs> uh, I hate to interrupt you, but an old buddy of mine used to say the worst thing in business is a motivated bad employee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My dad said
1: the motivated idiot generals were the most dangerous because they'd get everybody killed.
0: Yeah. A little too motivated. Although But, uh, but
1: you need but if but most people don't even have that motivation. They're apathetic. They sit at home, they get discouraged in life and they just mail it in, right? So you gotta I think start it's because some,
0: they've been drinking all that estrogen plastic water.
1: <laughs> You're probably right, man. The everything in life is designed to put you to sleep and keep you subsided. That's just that's just how it is. So once you know that you've got, it's like the matrix, the red pill, the blue pill, which one are you going to take? And If you're going to take the red pill, then hold on, man, it's going to be a wild ride, but you've got to find your resources, find your mentors, find your outside inspirations and that'll drive you forward. Yeah. You know, you and I were talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I know nothing about by the way, but it sounds like her story would be one of those heroic journeys, overcoming challenges. And if you listen to and pay attention to enough of those, then you start adopting those traits in and of yourself.
0: I think I I might be a little bit off, but uh, she was at Harvard Business School in the late 50s. And if I'm not mistaken, she was one of two or three women at the time. And she couldn't get a job coming out of uh, Harvard uh, because uh, law firms wouldn't hire women. And there's a scene in the movie, in the documentary, where um, they're interviewing a male classmate of hers. And he is describing how he and some of his other classmates all got sort of associate jobs or whatever they're called at some big ding-dong law firm. And they went to sort of the HR hiring um, partner and said, hey, there's a colleague of ours who's, who's really extraordinary. You should, you should hire her too. And the minute he said her, the partner literally said to him, we do not hire women here right so like you know of course i'm watching this documentary with my wife and you're sitting there going you know this is just not that long ago right You know, late 50s early 60s it's just not that long ago it's a, it, anyway it is a stunner and whether you like her her sort of uh left-leaning or don't like her left-leaning regardless of that you gotta i mean the the ground that she broke and took is truly extraordinary it's very worth watching
1: I love stories like that. Whether I agree with them politically or not doesn't matter. It's anyone overcoming anything. And we, you know, that's why I say white privilege, male privilege. You know, I didn't like it at first when my daughter told it to me, but it's absolutely true. It's been easier to be a guy in the world for many, many years. And it's been easier to be white in America for many, many years. So You you just don't understand
0: how challenging it is to be at a follicle disadvantage. (laughs) yes (laughs) that's correct i'm one of the follically oppressed
1: (laughs) yes you you but but it doesn't matter whatever you have to overcome the one thing i always say about too is i was like a little tiny kid in high school what about the little man like disadvantage or like uh, i weighed 120 pounds probably through high school and having to wear glasses too that's a disadvantage so no one gives me credit for being called four eyes my entire life yeah um, everyone has disadvantages. Some people have more than others and you've just still got to overcome all of that to win. And that's why I think we cry and weep at the most powerful stories because when you see somebody that overcome horrendous hardship and yet made a success of their life, it's, it's what, what it's really all about. No one has an easy life. I don't care who you are. You know, maybe it's easy for LeBron James. I don't know, but even yeah, my guess you know, is it's what, not. <laughs> uh, yeah, he moved to Miami. Everybody hated him. He's probably like, I was just trying to do a TV show. You know, like it, it's 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 interesting. Life's intense and it's, it's fun to kind of overcome all the bullshit.
0: Now, um, you're a guy who is forward about money in a way that is uh, somewhat shocking for me. You know, I, yeah
1: probably too much I guess
0: well and I, I want to get go there with you because I think it's fascinating uh, you know I grew up in Canada and there's a you know there's a a, a holdover I think culturally from um, the UK and in my case you know Scottish parents uh, Scottish grandparents uh, and parents for that matter but um where there was sort of this rule that says hey you don't talk about money that that's yeah. that's rude um and you're a guy that is incredibly open and direct about money. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious, sort of bring me inside that David Osborne, just your, your headset around money and how you think about it and why you're so open and direct and so forth.
1: Well, I think money is probably one of the top three most important things in the world. I mean, people may say it's not, but if you don't have any, try try starting there and see how you feel about it then. Um, and I think you only get better at things you talk about. I I, I sometimes wonder if I might be slightly on the scale because, uh, I just talk about everything very bluntly, but whether it's health, you know, if you want to talk about your, well, let's talk about health. This is an easier example. If you're like 50 pounds overweight and it's obvious, do you want a friend that says, Hey dude, you're 50 pounds overweight? Or do you want friends that just like, Hey man, have a donut here, have another beer. And the same is true of money. Like what you talk about, you can control influence and change. And maybe it's because of moving all Hold those on, times. Slow and down there,
0: honey. Say what you just said again. You can I control influence and change.
1: Yeah. You, what you talk about, you can control influence and change. What you don't talk about, what you keep hidden, you can't change. So if you have a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction, you, you know, one of the first steps is talking about it. If you don't talk about it, you don't have an opportunity to change it. If you don't admit it to yourself. So... Um, You know, I think the same is true with money. If you don't have a conversation around wealth, how you're going to get there, what are you going to do to be successful? There's like a formula to success with money. And if you're not having a conversation about that, then you get what you get. You don't throw a fit. I mean, don't be surprised if you never talk about money, if you're broke when you retire. And 65% of the country live on social security or worse. Right. So that's like failing
0: almost what, what, what? 65% of the
1: 65% of the country, uh, has nothing but social security when they're done with their work career. 1% is wealthy, four more percent are rich. So that's 5% make it. And then, and then the, the, you know, somewhere in the middle is the, I guess, what does that add up to 30, another 30% or somewhere in the middle of that. So that's, that's terrible. Why is that? Cause no one's talking about money. Like what if we talked about money at an early age in school? What if we had, you know, I mean, it's the old cliche. If you, if, people are wondering why everyone's broke in life and no one teaches them anything about money. And they're taught by high school people who just, you know, teachers who don't know anything about money themselves. So it's not surprising we have a broke society.
0: And to me, you tell me if I'm thinking about this the right way, because I, I know you've thought about it a lot more than I have. Um, I think there's two components of money at a minimum. Maybe there's more. One is there's some basic skills that we all need to learn. Um, how to balance a checkbook, why credit yeah. cards are evil and how you should deal with that. Uh, yeah. You know, Living below your means. If I make five grand a month i can't spend, spend four correct all, all of that Not good sick. stuff I, yeah i read this book in canada that's an amazing book um called the wealthy barber when i was a young man yeah it's a
1: great book i remember that book i've read it too it's a lot like the richest man in babylon
0: v- very much it's almost the, i mean it's been a while since i read both books but they're very much the same book and very both very f- it's fun when people take a fable and teach you something it's almost like a kid's fable right and so yeah. I, I, as somebody who came within a hair of personal bankruptcy at 21, I, I said, hey, wait a minute, I need to get smart about all this. Um, uh, and so, so I guess my point is on money, the first thing in my head is there's a baseline set of education around managing checkbooks and being smart about your expenses and your income and, you know, getting yourself clear about all that. No consumer debt, all the basic... Uh, building blocks of a financial uh, well-being and, and so that that's part of it um, and then and maybe there's three I guess there's always three things isn't there David and then the that's third it. the second one is okay so how am I going to make some money like some real money right, right. so that I can build uh, uh, some freedom and some future for myself and then inside uh, inside of that and I guess this is the third one is what's your for lack of a better description a relationship with money like yeah and the way i think about this one is do you own your money or does it own you um anyway maybe help me unpack some of those the sort of the basic skill sets the how do i then act once i figure out the basics yeah.
1: how- so the day the basic skill sets is what everybody lacks that's dave ramsey that's why he and susie Orman have a bazillion followers because most people got nothing you know nobody taught them nothing nobody talked about money uh, nobody gave them anything. So they end up like running their credit cards up because it's easy. They buy big screen TVs they don't need and they end up in debt and broke. And maybe they wise up, wise up or maybe they don't. They go to Dave Ramsey out of desperation. and Then he acts like the parent figure they never had and says, stop spending all your money on stupid shit. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, let me write that down. and Let me pay you $500 for this course. And it's useful for them and it's great for them. That's what I think we're lacking in life in general, right? Um, and then the second piece you mentioned was how to make money before
0: you you go there. So you think the best way, if I'm somebody who maybe I'm a young person or maybe I'm not a young person, but I realize I I have the financial literacy of a drunken moron here. I I need to get my shit together. and so just Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman. Okay. I think those are the two that serve that entry level knowledge requirement. All right. And then, so once I get that basic shit down, then what do I do? So then you do, you know, the main number one thing is to live below your means, right? And
1: and so then save money. There's a janitor in my book, Wealth Can't Wait. We talked about this janitor that had eight million dollars at his death and he never made more than a janitor makes. I know a, a cop who took his money. Cops don't make that much money. San Antonio cop ended up owning 12 rental properties. Um, you know, when he retired from the from the police force. They get taken pretty well care of. He's got a good pension, but it was like dwarfed by the revenue from his rental property. So you don't have to make a lot of money. Once you live below your means, it's then what do you do with that money? What do you do with the money that you're able to save? We're in a capitalistic society. Capitalism means you save up capital, you go to work for capital so you can put your capital to work for you. That's the entire game right there. Hold and on, I was talking Hold to, on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Say that last sentence against their, again their hands. You
1: go to work for capital- so that your capital can eventually go to work for you uh, if you live below your means. That, that, so you just, just,
0: that, that one makes me happy when you say that one.
1: So your capital can go work for you. yeah. And all these young kids today that love socialism and hate capitalism. I mean, I hope they don't have to go through the pain of most socialistic societies, but uh, yeah, you go to work for capital, you save capital. So your capital can go for work. Capitalism is like almost a bad name right now, but actually capitalism has brought almost all major financial transformations in the world from You know hospitals dams all that comes from capital which is capital money that can be invested jobs you know Tesla's your iPhone everything you like comes from capitalism other than love which is better but okay so then so then you don't really have to go to step three which is your relationship to money but I would suggest that that janitor and that cop had a healthy relationship to money which is why even a very low income they were able to get to a high level of financial success based by most people's measures So I would agree that the third one is possibly the most important and maybe you're born with it and not born with it, which is your relationship to money and that's your mindset. Do you embrace it? Do you understand what it's for? Um, You know, from my point of view, money is like the oxygen of society. It has to flow. It has to come in, go out, go to other people and flow through your life. And if you get that part right, I think you'll tend to acquire more because I actually think on some spiritual level and I'm not a religious person, but on some spiritual level, or even just on a practical level, a society needs a certain amount of people that are willing to take capital and deploy it in different areas and keep it flowing. If you get good at that, then the odds are that you're going to rise economically as a steward of wealth, and that's effectively what you are. So that's
0: the relationship to money. Well, and for me, so I love all that, David. And and, and for me, um, sort of, how do I want to say this? Um, The absence of money, might be the biggest single thing I ever overcame. Yeah, I can see that. And this is something I rarely talk about. Um, but I grew up in a paradigm of struggle, uh, working class, gen, you know, uh, and um, there's this context when I grew up uh, in Canada. I don't know if it's still there, but sort of anybody who has a lot of money is probably a crook. You know, there's that piece. But more importantly, you know, I was the seven-year-old kid who, uh, in February, when my mother's uh, Chrysler Duster crapped out at the fucking stoplight in February, it was freezing cold in Montreal. I got to run outside the car, pop the hood, and stick my finger in the choke while she kind of tried to get the car to go again, and people are honking behind us. And, you know, and so, and money was the thing that stopped us in life. You know, there yeah. was just, let me say it this way. For me, in my memory growing up, one of the things that was present was a lack of resources. Mm. And um, and so overcoming that was an extraordinary um, impossibility in my mind. And so I guess the first part about it for me is just realizing that like, come hell or high water, I was going to fucking do that. I, I was not going to struggle like that.
1: That's awesome. And do you have brothers and sisters that made the same decision?
0: Um, you know, that's a great question. I, I think the, the answer is probably no, but maybe not quite in the way that you mean it. So I have a sister. She's a year younger than I am. Um, and she's not financially driven, although she's married to a very successful guy And, you know, she's the mother of triplets. And so.
1: Hey, that's way better. If I could have just found a wife that had enough money, I'd have happily just played golf and stayed at home and looked after the kids. (laughs) I told my wife that. I said, look, honey, if you ever want to just go to work and grind it out, I'm happy to stay at home. You've just got to make a lot of money because my standards are really, really high. (laughs) She's like, yeah, right, whatever. So you don't believe me a minute. It's it's funny, like with
0: salespeople, we always used to say, hire salespeople with needy spouses. Ah, very
1: smart. So I think um, my brother and sister are completely different from me. I grew up completely middle class. We never really lacked for anything, but we, you know, we got secondhand clothes and my folks sacrificed to give us the best they could. They sent us to private English school, which I don't know how much it was. I think it was not that much money. Not like you'd think of a private school in America, but we were based over there. So she didn't want us to go to the public school. So they sent us to a private school. It was a boarding school, you know, complete with corporal punishment and wearing uniforms and all that kind of crap. Um, but I think, you know, my brother and sister both done very well. And I've just, you know, blown past my parents, my mom, my dad, my my brother, my sister, we were very middle class. When my dad retired from the army, they probably had a net worth of 250,000, but they had a pension. So, you know, was, I, I, you know even from an early age, I remember tuning into that, like I was 15, 14 years old when I retired. Why would I know that? I don't know. My folks must have talked about it one time, and I just kind of held on to that bits of information. Like it was something that Appealed to me from the get-go. I wanted to be financially free. I didn't want to have to answer to anybody ever, and uh, that's what drove me. But I can't say, and I meet you know Tim Road. My you and I both have good friendship with Tim. Like so poor that you know if he lost a tennis shoe, he knew he wasn't going to get another one for six months or a year or whatever it would be. Like that's that wasn't my experience. We didn't have a lot, but we had plenty. You know, we never starved. We never went without food. We might have only got one gift at Christmas, but we probably treasured it and appreciated it way more than the kids that get thirty gifts. And it was a gift. It would be a, like an Action Man or a bicycle or something. And you know, who cares if it was my brother's old get, bicycle?
0: Did you get the Steve Austin in the inside the spaceship? <laughs> You're younger than me. I was I was just the old simple GI Joe man. Are.
1: I can't. I think he must be. I'm 51. How old are you? Yeah, I'm 50. Okay. Well, I grew up in England too. You know, 68. everything came 10 years later. I didn't get. Oh, you I grew watched up in England. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we would always have. You know, back then, you remember the movies in America would come out like a year later in England. We never got them at the same time when I was there. So. No, we had, I just had the simple G.I. Joe, and it was my brother's G.I. Joe. I just got all my brother's G.I. Joes when he was done with them. I didn't get new shit. I got my brother's air rifle, but an air rifle's a badass toy. It doesn't matter where it comes That's from. That's a you badass
0: get toy. You can't give a kid
1: an air rifle today, can you? I don't think so. I grew up shooting and hunting on a farm at age 11. My dad would let me just take a shotgun and go out and shoot, but I was raised with a lot of discipline, too. If I ever didn't unload that shotgun one, when climbing over a fence, my dad would say, give me the gun, I'd give it to him, and then he'd just punch me. He's like, next time, take the bullets out before you climb over the fence. I had a very clear level of responsibility on how to carry that gun around.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, I'm probably going to get me in trouble, but I, I think a little bit of corporal punishment goes a long way, right? Yeah, I don't know, man. The world, I mean, I haven't had to do it with my kids, but,
1: you know, I've got two girls, now a boy, and I'll tell you, with the boy, I could see it coming. The girls, I think there's something about testosterone at a young age, but my girls were sweet and lovely, and then as, you know, I've never had to lay a hand on either of them, and, you know, had some intense conversations, you know.
0: But do you have a hellion in this little boy? Is that what's going on? Well, he
1: just doesn't listen, and he hits stuff, and he throws stuff at you, and he's just, I haven't had to lay hands on him yet. He's only two, and I don't think I will, but it's definitely more of a, a, a challenge. Yeah, I don't think you're supposed
0: to smack a two-year-old.
1: <laughs> no, no. I, I don't think I'll ever smack my kid, but I, I don't guarantee that. My wife is more likely to. She's she she she's got the same temper, but he's he's just intense, man, and and for sure. I would say the idea that you should never lay a hand on a kid is probably what leads to the amount of problems we have in, 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 in the world. When I, got, <laughs> when I got beat as a kid, it was clear. Like, I'd made a mistake at the school. They'd sit down with me. They'd talk to me about it, and then they'd tell me to grab my ankles, and they'd grab a size 17 slipper and smack me in the ass and it was humiliating and painful, but it certainly uh, straightened you out a little bit, made you pay attention more. I don't know. That's a question I'd leave to somebody else, but I don't think you can be super soft in life either. I think you can't, we, we overindulge today and I, I don't think that's good either.
0: Yeah. Being soft is not going to make you hard. <laughs> exactly. There's just no way that works. Now, I'm, Dude, what, is I, the, what are the things that you think that most people get wrong when they start to think about, let's say they get the baseline, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman stuff done. And now they're saying, okay, I, w- I want to build some wealth. I agree with David Osborne, wealth can't wait. What are the things that, you know, people should do to actually build real wealth?
1: Okay. So the the first most simple one is no one ever takes any risk and there's a direct correlation between risk and reward. And, and when you're looking at the safe job with IBM or the little startup company, I think most people choose the safe company instead of doing the startup. And, um, I think if you're young, especially you don't have kids, don't have families, you should be taking as much risk as you possibly can. Um, and I know that, you know, it, I, I'm hiring people all the time that are t- more talented than me because I give them a salary, right? Without, if they went and did their own thing, they'd probably do better, but they want the security of a salary. and I get that, especially when you have kids and you're further down the road. And if, especially if it's someone like me that you're working for, who's so great, but at the end of the day, you should take a- as much handsome, risk as you possibly can. Don't forget pay. handsome. Thank you. Handsome, intelligent, caring. But if you if you're young, you should be taking risks. You got to get out there and bounce around and see what happens and eat it up, eat up the failure, eat up the pavement. Because once you've eaten the pavement a couple times, you realize it doesn't taste that bad. It doesn't taste great, but it doesn't taste that bad either. People think it's way worse than it actually is, and so uh, you got to take that risk. But but let's go back to a more conservative strategy. Let's say you do have kids and a wife and a job, but you've learned to manage your expenses. Then you got to take that capital and invest it wisely. And I'm not talking about cryptocurrency. I mean, I sat with a kid today, 28 years old. How much savings you got? I asked him. He reached out to me because he read my book. I want a mentor with you. I'm like, how much you got? 20,000. What have you been investing in? A little bit of cryptocurrency. I wanted to reach across and punch him, but he was about a foot taller than me and he looked like he was in pretty good shape. So I didn't do it. I'm like, fucking cryptocurrency. Are you crazy? Like if you have, I've got some money in cryptocurrency. Let me tell you what it is. It's like 0.01% of my net worth. 0.0. 0.0. And the only reason I went in is because there's a Sikh brilliant mathematician guy that has great honor that started a fund that I trust. And I put some money with him just so I wouldn't miss the ride if there was one. And I don't care if I lose every penny. But if you're 28 years old, you got 20 grand in your name, go buy a house, rehab it, build some actual wealth. Uh, don't put it in cryptocurrency. I think people, they work really hard and save up all their money. And then they put it in the craziest ideas like, oh, yeah, I'm just starting a My buddy's starting a pet shop, so I put $20,000 into it. I hear this all the time. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? It's because they want the easy money. You don't get easy money. You get safe base hits. Just go after the base hits. The high risk should be with your time, knowledge, getting equity by working at a company. But with your capital you've saved, if you're a detective or a nurse or a doctor, go buy real estate, one rental property, one duplex at a time. Let that manifest and grow for you. Build a, a team around something you know and understand and can influence. So, my, my first advice is to live below your means. Second advice is to, to save capital. And then third advice is to learn how to invest that capital wisely so that it doesn't lose its principle. Warren Buffett's rule number one, which should be good for you if you're a beginner, is don't lose your principle. That's the money you started with. And rule number two, he says, is see rule number one. If you never lose your, prin- lose your principle, you're going to build wealth over a lifetime. If you put it all in cryptocurrency and it goes from 20 to 10 or 5, you've lost 75% of your currency and you got to make 3 times that to earn that back up because of taxes and drag. So, it's really that, you know, save money and then invest it wisely.
0: Now, there's another thing I wanted to ask you about in this regard. So, on the invest it wisely, um, you know, like anyone, I've made good investments and bad investments. Um, and it took me a while to realize that from an investing point of view, Uh, Swinging for the fences is a dumb idea, generally. It is a dumb idea. And my accountant, um, God bless him, Greg Finley, said to me, look, I I don't care who you are, over a long period of time, a decade or more, in the stock market, there's nobody that makes better than 5% net of taxes and fees over the long term. Yeah, some people do, you know, maybe a little, maybe there's some people make 8 but if you're making 5% net of taxes and fees over a decade, you are a investing rock star. Yep. Does that sound right to you? You know, I don't have any idea. I don't like the stock market. Yes, it sounds right. You like the it, you, you obviously, you like real estate way better than the stock market.
1: Yeah. It's long-term return is 8%. So after tax is 5% stock market is a great way to preserve wealth. It's not a great way to build wealth. It's a great way to preserve wealth and don't be a stock picker. Don't be an option trader. Don't be a day trader. I'm I, one of the recently a guy everyone thought was a super smart day trader, just lost a bunch of money. And I'm like, the day I met him, I'm like, I don't know about this. It seems kind of fishy to me. Like it seems risky. And, um, sure enough, it turned out I was right yet again. Um, like you always are. But, <laughs> yeah, just ask my wife. I, she would agree with that. Um, but for sure, like I just like real estate because you, it's really hard to screw real estate up. It's not a binary outcome. Bitcoin could be a binary outcome, zero or triple. But uh, real estate's usually worst case eighty cents on the dollar recovery, and best case, you know, maybe you make ten to twelve percent a year over ten to fifteen years. I mean, I've got uh, almost a hundred single family homes that yield, you know, five hundred thousand net profit a year. And my wife, hold on, that's you not have a what?
0: what? 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 You have, how I have many about that do
1: single fam- 95 single family homes currently. That, that you personally own. That I personally own. The net are right around a half a million bucks a year net after expenses. Um, as rental properties. As rental properties. And I have a manager that manages all my managers. And by the way, that person costs me 70. So make it 430 net now, which is a, a layer that I could do myself. But I threw that layer in. So every property is managed by a professional management company in the state, country, city that it's in. Uh, all in the U.S., so I shouldn't have said country. And then, um, and then I hired a manager to do what used to be my job, which is managing all the managers. And so that kid is great kid. I love him. He's, he's just awesome, half Guatemalan, half Irish. He manages all the managers. And uh, I tell my wife, if I got killed tomorrow, you're gonna, here's how you're gonna sell all my businesses. I need to update it. I haven't done it in three years. But here's how you're gonna sell everything I've created at who, to, and for what price, in great favorable terms. But you're gonna keep these 95 rental properties because those 95 rental properties are gonna pay you. Four hundred and thirty a year if you keep Danny, um, which you must do, by the way, um, for the rest of your life. You know, that's it. It's easy money, and by the way, it appreciates about four percent a year too, and it's worth about you know ten or eleven million bucks. So that's another four hundred thousand in unrealized gains that also gets you know tax advantaged. So, and that's why you know, guys
0: love real estate. That's why
1: we love real estate. And the other and thing, money, this and it may it sound like a
0: stupid aha, because of course I'm not in. You know, I'm in real estate. It sounds even. It sounds pompous a real estate investor, but I own some real estate Um, and a lot of it, I've been taught by Tim road and a lot of the real estate relationships I have are through Tim. Yeah. And so I just follow him around and go, Oh, well, if Tim's doing it, then I'll do it. Um, but what do I know? But one of the ahas for me about real estate is to your point on the principle when you're doing something in real estate, if all the shit hits all the fans, you still own a fucking, in this case, 95 houses. Correct. Like you still have a fucking something. Yep. And, and I it got, can't really, I mean, I guess technically anything can go to zero, but you're like, if, if, if you own a um, 1500 square foot house in a nice suburb of Dallas, you fucking own that house. Yeah. And I've got 25%
1: leverage on it. So like it would be, it would be, I just, it just couldn't go to zero. So,
0: I mean, 25% leverage means what?
1: So the, pro- the properties are, let's say worth 10 million. I got two and a half million in debt. So 7.5 million in equity. Yeah. So,
0: so the it- way you lose
1: in real estate is if you over leverage. So you buy that 1500 square foot house you mentioned and you levered at 99% and the market adjusts down 10%, you now have negative net worth. So the way you never lose in real estate is you always have positive cash flow and you always have a little bit of equity that gives you a cushion in a downturn. So if you have positive cash flow and an equity cushion, you can, you know, it's really hard to lose. It's not impossible, but the guys that lost big time in the last big crash were the guys that went to Vegas and bought eight condos, you know, with 100% leverage and, you know, maybe they put down 5% or whatever. Those are the guys that got killed.
0: So if I, uh, I wanna start und- my life off as a real estate investor, you know, maybe right. someone like me, a tech guy, or maybe I'm a carpenter or whatever it is, I have no real estate experience. I'm listening to you. I'm reading Wealth Can't Wait. I want to I want to have some. I love this term that you guys use. Uh, We we had Pat Hyben on recently, Uh, the the real estate rock star himself. (laughs) He is amazing. And I love this term. You guys have horizontal income. Yeah, sure.
1: Like I probably have. So uh, How do I create
0: my first horizontal income? My account says I have between 80 and 200 sources of income every
1: month. So um, if you think about that, it depends how you quantify it. So if you take my 95 homes as individual units, that's 95 checks I get every month, right? I would only count that as like seven because I have to seven Do you do a dance
0: every time? Like when you go to the, when you go to the mailbox to. and there's a check in there, do you oh. like?
1: Yeah, I don't get it anymore. It goes to my bookkeepers who put it in my account. There was a time for sure when that was massively important to me. Um, now it's become irrelevant. Like I'm financially free. It'll never be a pressure on my lifetime. Again, economically, I, I it would, it's not impossible. I mean, I know that if I challenge the universe, the universe could prove me wrong, but at the end of the day, that's very unlikely I'll be broken this lifetime. So I don't really worry about it anymore. I'm just trying to see what I can create, who I can influence, who I can impact, how I can change the lives of other people. One of my favorite things to do now is to take a guy who's stuck at a job and say, Hey, look, come work for me. I'll guarantee your salary. I'll give you 30% of a new business that we co-create. I'll fund it. I'll be 70, you'll be 30. And as we create it, you'll get financially free. And I'm, it's just, it's a fun conversation. I get to do it with a lot of smart kids that probably could do it on their own, but don't quite have that. They have a higher need of security than I probably did as a kid or whatever. So, um, yes, I used to do a happy dance. I used to love getting those checks and, and it's really life changing. And it was probably a happy dance for me for 10 plus years, but it's just now I've been doing it for a long time.
0: And so let's say I'm a, whether I'm a Silicon Valley product manager or a carpenter in Wyoming. Look, like, here's the great what, thing about real I estate. I want to do my first yeah, yeah, real yeah. estate deal to get that so go, horizontal income. Yeah. What do I do? So you, you go,
1: first you join GoBundance. Secondly, you go buy about five books from the bookstore. I used to say buy secondhand books, but then I became an author. So go buy them new, put a little money in that author's pocket. Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, creating Wealth Through Residential Real Estate Investments by Russ Whitney. Um, you know, Wealth Can't Wait, of course. Um, you know, there's a lot of books out there on real estate. Just go. I, I, my chef, of all people. So, I have a chef that cooks me healthy organic meals, 20 meals for the week. As you do. She comes to me one day and she says, I just spent $70,000 on a real estate class. What do you think? And I'm like, when did you do this? She goes, like, an hour ago. I'm like, come to my house right now. She drove over. I'm like, let me see the materials. I looked at the materials. I'm like... Go get your money back. right? I said, how much net? How much do you have saved up? I'm sorry, it was 35. She goes, I got 70 grand total. This course is 35. I'm like, go get your money back. You tell them, you know, th- if you have to threaten them, they, she didn't have to threaten them. They gave it right back. But I'm like, this, there's nothing in this book that's relevant to what you're gonna do. Now go buy these three books. If you're broke, you can get them at the secondhand store for probably five bucks a piece. Read them cover to cover. Find yourself a really good real estate agent that specializes in investment properties and go to work with that person. That's how you start. Um, Find a house. And let's get those three books again. So, Well, my favorite of all time is Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. Um, My second one is uh, Creating Wealth Through Residential Real Estate Investments by Russ Whitney. Uh, There's also one called Dolph Dolph DeRoos wrote like real estate riches or, uh, you know, real estate riches. And then the third one I'd say is, um, you know, of course, wealth can't wait. I have to put that one in there now because I wrote it it's a great book. Uh, Thanks. Um, So you read those books, but there's like 10 other books. And the thing about a real estate book is you read more and more like anything in life, you'll know 90% of it, but there'll be 10% gold in there. And there's also some BS in there. People will say like, oh, no money down and all this crap and raps and this. Don't make it complicated. Just hustle. Look at 100 deals to make an offer on 10, to negotiate three, to buy one. That's that's the bottom line. That's what used to be the ratio. So, you know, you got to look at 100 deals to find the good one. People are always like, I asked a doctor one time, I'm like, what's your net worth? He goes, 1.6 million. I said, how much is it in your primary residence? 800. I said, well, why don't you have two residences? He lived in Santa Monica, right? It's like, I don't know. No one ever brings me deals. I said, no one brings anybody deals. Like, I'm, I'm, no one just shows up and says, hey, I got a killer deal. Would you like to buy it? I understand you're a doctor. You got to learn to look at deals. You got to hustle all the time. So, one of my favorite quotes is always be hustling with integrity. And so, you got to look at deals on a continuous basis. Just look, 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 look. And look at 100 real estate deals. And people say, Well, I don't have any money. Why would I look at deals? I'm like, Because if you don't look at deals, when you have money, you won't know the good ones. So look at 100 deals, constantly be looking at deals. Go find three or four in different market realtors that specialize in investment property. Say, Look, I'm a buyer. Send me your deals. Talk to them. Get educated. Join an investment club. Join something like GoAbundance." And then buy a deal. You know, my favorite way to buy a deal if you're a starter is to buy a home that will turn into a rental, live into it for a couple of years, then turn it into a rental and go buy another one. My, that's what I did with my first house. I lived in it for like a year and a half. And then you I moved love back in that, it.
0: right? Because you get the tax dodge and you it, the get whole the tax, thing. You get the better interest rate. You can rent out rooms if you're
1: broke. You can rent out rooms to your buddies. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that. I had a three-bedroom house. If I'd rented out two rooms, I could have covered the mortgage. So basically, I'm living there for free. I couldn't do that today, and nobody could when you're older, probably, because living with people's a pain. Um, and then, and then move out. Then I moved back into an apartment because, and then I turned it into a rental. And then I bought another house as a rental from then on because I like living in an apartment because I didn't like dealing with the maintenance myself. And the cool, and then you know, have a property manager. Like there's simple things. People are like, oh, I hated. I had a house once and I hated it. My tenant would call me at one o'clock in the morning. Well, if you have a property manager, it's seven or eight percent of your gross commit uh annual rent. You don't have to take those calls. That's like 80 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month for a, a small rental. So that's 1200 bucks a year. You get a full-time employee for 1200 bucks a year. It's unheard of. So go just build that into your model. And the best way to start is to just get started. I love it. Cliche, it. Always works.
0: I love it. And I love, I don't know if this is what you guys mean by horizontal uh, income, but what I like about the term is I can be laying down making money. <laughs>
1: That's correct. You can lay on a hammock and receive checks. And that's, you know, horizontal income is the idea that you make all your money from one source. That's vertical income. And each year you try to get a little better and get a raise, but you could also have like, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 other paychecks that come in horizontally across the scale, whether you, whether you get out of bed or not. And that's your goal in life. Everyone's goal in that is life is to earn capital invest it, and earn a yield off. But of if you suck at it, you get social security. That's all you get. But if you can figure out, you know, everyone eventually lives off of what we call horizontal income. So the question is, can you accelerate that process and start it earlier?
0: I love it. Anything else before we uh, kick out of this one, Dr. Osborne?
1: Brother, I love what you're doing. The one thing we haven't discussed is the amount of failure there is in life, how much tarmac you have to eat. Your, your podcast right. is so aptly named. It's Legends and Losers. And I think when people hear that, they think that it's binary. There are legends and there are losers, but that's not true. As you said multiple times, you're only a winner if you've been a loser. It's impossible to be a legend without being a loser.
0: Well, and the other thing, I, I had this, you know, this sort of thought that we get sold some of us when we're younger that like, oh, you're going to work your balls off. You're going to get to some place. You're going to get to the top of the mountain. And then like, ta-da, there'll be like rose petals and champagne and yeah. and all that. Right. And yeah. and look, you've had success. I've had success. But, but the reality is if you keep going for shit that matters to you in life, you're going to have massive soul crushing failure like You're never done being, or at least let me, I'll speak for myself. I'm never done feeling like a loser. I feel like a loser every fucking day when I can't find my fucking keys. Yeah. Right.
1: (laughs) Or you're late for an appointment that you promised you wouldn't be late for, or you don't work out that day. Yeah, of course. Every day you're a loser and every day you're a winner. And there is no mythical mountaintop. In fact, if you ever do arrive, you look around, you're all alone. It's cold. The wind is blowing. You're like, Hey, where is everybody? And they're off doing their thing. It's a series of mountaintops. It's nice to occasionally
0: summit, but at the end of the day, it's the climb that matters. And there's going to be a lot of losery on the climb. <laughs> yes, sir. There sure is. A lot of sharding going on. <laughs> a- anything else,
1: Mr. Osborne? No, nah, it's a blast to be with you, Chris. As always, great respect for you and happy to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Hey, Peace. man.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, you're a great inspiration. I love your book. Obviously, I love all the GoBros, Bros. And uh, I can't wait to see you again soon. Love you, man. Take it love easy, you too, Bye-bye. David. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Woo! David Osborne on the podcast. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, is it grow time in your business? Because NetSuite wants to help you master your growth. Thousands of super high growth startups and nonprofits rely on NetSuite. NetSuite is the complete business management software that handles every aspect of running your business or nonprofit in the cloud. And NetSuite grows with you. You can start off with NetSuite from the garage to the IPO and beyond. The other thing I love about what they've done at NetSuite is um, they live in the modern world. You know, some of these software providers, you look at their technology and you go, when was this stuff built? The Nixon administration? And so NetSuite has created the ability for you to run your business from your mobile phone. Uh, You get awesome dashboards that allow you to stay on top of your sales, finance, accounting, orders, inventory, and even HR instantaneously. Tens of thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies and nonprofits use NetSuite to manage their business. And now it's available to you at a surprisingly cost-effective price. Yeah, cost-effective price. It's a – listen – it's a lot cheaper than you might think. <laughs> so go to netsuite.com slash different today. And what they're offering for you as a listener to this podcast is the opportunity to book a one hour growth review with an expert in your industry. And, um, and when you do that, you'll be able to talk about opportunities and challenges for optimizing and maximizing your growth. So check out com slash different. All right. We would like to thank the best selling book by today's guest, my buddy, David Osborne, Wealth Can't Wait. Why not pick up a couple copies? Um, it's a real eye opener and it's incredibly well written. The good folks at one life fully live dream, plan, and live your best life. The number one life fully live dot org. Now, podcast I've grown quite fond of. The Unstructured Podcast. And like this podcast, it's very conversational uh, with my new buddy, Eric Hunley. He recently had me on. Uh, we had a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Why not check out the Unstructured Podcast? Now, are you trying to facilitate massive positive change in your organization? Then check out lead, the number two, flourish.com, because that's the website for the Flourishing Leadership Institute. Uh, run by my buddies John Bergoff and Scott Lowry. They have an incredible team and some of the most um, high-profile companies on planet Earth. Bring them in to help them break through and create ch- uh, positive change in their business. Check out leadtoflourish.com. Now, if you're an entrepreneur or you're an entrepreneurial person, I'd also invite you to look at growwire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurs are reading. Uh, There you'll find many stories of innovation, lots of awesome written content, a a YouTube television show, and a podcast that I've also been uh, privileged to guest on. Now, we seem to be uh, growing our audience, our listeners, in beautiful Ireland, one of my favorite countries in the world. And I don't know, if you've been to Ireland and you enjoy a, um, an alcoholic beverage like I do, I can't tell you exactly why the Jamesons and the Guinness taste better in a pub in Ireland. Maybe it's just the freshness. I don't know. But man, oh, man. Um, there's lots of great things about Ireland, and one of them are my friends at Fusion uh, PR, Marketing, and Graphic Design. If you want to do legendary marketing in Ireland, check out F U Z or Z, depending on how you want to say it. F U Z I O N dot I E. That's Fusion dot I E. And the amazing people at Kiva, K I V A dot O R G. These are the folks that are helping entrepreneurs in the developing world with interest-free loans. They're an amazing nonprofit. Um, They do incredible work. And uh, it's really really rewarding to be involved. Check out Kiva.org today. All right. I need to remind you that today's information is provided solely for informational purposes. And this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And all rights do remain perturbed. Uh, Clearly, this uh, podcast is not for wankers. And um, warning, we have been told it is highly contagious. Be nice to your mother. Support your local entrepreneurs. Don't forget to buy John's Crazy Socks. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. And if you are an iOS user, an iPhone user, and you have Siri enabled, did you know that you can just say, hey, Siri? subscribe to Christopher Lockhead Follow Your Different and she'll set that up for you. So it used to be really hard to turn people who aren't into podcasts onto podcasts and now with voice technology it can be that easy. Uh, Don't be lame, get out of the passing lane. Remember to listen to Leonard Cohen because there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in. Only buy pasture raised free range eggs Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of PG&E. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much, my friends. Until next time, follow your different.